Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Misery. Misery was written by Stephen King and was published in 1988. And the film adaptation was directed by Rob Reiner and came out in 1990. And here we are, we're back, we're doing another Stephen King adaptation. I know, the last one I think we did was Stand By Me, correct? Yeah, which was over a year ago. Over, Wow, really? Mm-hmm. And was also directed by Rob Reiner. Yeah. So this, is, <laughs> this was uh, his second time doing a Stephen King mm-hmm. adaptation. King really loved Stand By Me, the film. Yeah. And apparently this was like a very personal uh, film to him or, or novel mm-hmm. and so he's very hesitant about giving out the film rights and only agreed to if Rob Reiner either produced it or directed it. Yeah, so really exciting to be doing another Stephen King. We love Stephen King, and we also hate him at the same time. Like <laughs> hate is a strong. It's not hate. Word. It's like it's 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 uh there are criticisms, legitimate criticisms yes. of Stephen King. But I also just love his writing. And actually, Misery is the first Stephen King book that I ever read. Yes, and I think it's a great intro to King. Yes. So here's the thing: when yeah. I met Ian. Back in the dark ages. Almost 10 years ago now. Yes. Ian was a big Stephen King fan, and I had never read any Stephen King. And, you know, Ian was kind of like, I think you'd like him. You should give him a try. But I was really worried because I didn't. I don't really do horror. And I still don't really do horror. But Ian was like, there's so much more to him than that. Um, why don't you start with a book that's like, it's scary but it's not like terrifying it's more suspenseful yeah it's disturbing yeah for sure but it's not going it's not paranormal either no you're not gonna like look in the darkness of your closet and feel a shiver (laughs) run down your spine like he does so often in other books yeah so i read this book and just loved it for the deep interior character development that was going on with paul sheldon the main character And after that, I just kept reading Stephen King, and then we've been doing a ton of his books and adaptations for the podcast. So, yeah, we are like a small Stephen King fan podcast. (laughs) Yes, at this point. (laughs) I mean, his books are varied in quality for for sure. I Mm -hmm. mean, he has so many classics, right? But there's a lot of other books in in that, um, (laughs) in his not discography. What is it for a writer? His oeuvre. His oeuvre. <laughs> uh, there, there's plenty of L's in there, too. But, you know, he has so many classic stories. And same with his adaptations, right? There's a lot of really well-known ones, a lot of great ones, mm-hmm. a lot of misses, misfires, too. And we definitely wanted to do Misery because the film adaptation is, at this point, almost as famous or more famous than the novel itself. For sure. Yeah, and also it's winter, and what says winter like being stuck in someone's house in a snowstorm, and they're threatening to murder you. (laughs) And (laughs) we are genuinely about to be hit by when we're recording this, which is December 21st? 22nd. 22nd. We're getting a big snowstorm coming up, so it feels appropriate, right, that we're doing this story right now. (laughs) It's working for us. Yeah, yeah, we're in the mood. All right, so let's start with Paul, our main character. Yes. He is a writer, and he has this famous body of work, which is which are his misery novels. Mm-hmm. These books are what I would classify as historical fiction slash light romance in them. 
Yeah, not a bodice ripper exactly. Not yeah. that kind of like steamy intensity. They're kind of adventure romps, it yeah. seems. Mm-hmm. It's funny, especially reading reading the book, you get little flashes of what other plot lines from other books had been. Yeah. In the film, you get Kathy Bates kind of ranting about different <laughs> elements tied together. So you get like a a glimpse at what this series is like, which mm-hmm. is kind of interesting and funny. Yeah, but Paul also writes other books, and his misery novels are kind of his money makers, right? He writes them because yeah. they bring in the cash, but he also wants to be taken seriously because genre fiction and fiction that's generally for women is not taken seriously. Mm-hmm. So he wants to write literary books. He wants to write things that are edgy, and he's actually just now finishing up this manuscript for a book called Fast Cars in the book. <laughs> yes. In the movie, it's untitled, but it's very like experimental, rough around the edges about this kid growing up in kind of a slum and having to hijack cars, things like that. Do you think the description of this book is intentionally supposed to be kind of cheesy, maybe a little like I get the sense that he is a little full of himself when mm-hmm. thinking about this being like a real, a real novel, like the yeah. real deal. And <laughs> he even reflects on it later in the book thinking, I think, uncertain about whether he was full of himself, whether this was a good novel mm-hmm. or not. I think he really does reflect later in the book on whether his desire to write this type of book mm-hmm. is coming from a place of genuinely wanting to write something different or feeling like he has to prove himself. Yeah. Because like I was saying, you know, genre fiction, which Stephen King writes in, right? And fiction that is mass consumed by women is always seen as lower. Yeah. And so if you want to be taken seriously, you have to write kind of for men. I say that with in quotations. Um, and I still think that's a problem. I think that's something that, you know, the publishing industry has to deal with. For sure. I love his reflection on this. And I mean, this could so easily be applied to King yes. himself, right? And I, I'm sure I know there's like a ton of autobiographical qualities to this, right? Because mm-hmm. King kind of gets shoehorned into writing horror stories and yeah. People kind of, I mean, so many people love his stories, right? But also there's kind of, some people can easily dismiss them as just being genre fiction Mm -hmm. and not really taking it seriously. Yeah, and I know he got a lot of pushback when he wrote different types of fiction as well. Because he wrote all over the place. Like, he writes fantasy, you know, science fiction type stuff. Obviously paranormal horror. Also just writes, like general fiction like all the short stories in the stand by me collection yeah is just kind of about people and growing up and different things like that so yeah i think his desire to not be boxed in and not to have to keep writing the same thing is coming out here in paul sheldon the writer and i believe this was also at the point in his career right after he had written all the books under his pseudonym richard bachman okay And that was kind of a whole thing where he was like, are people only buying my books because I wrote them Mm -hmm. or are they actually good or not? He wasn't sure. So he did that whole experiment. So he seemed like he was in a really self-reflective state Mm -hmm. of his writing and his career at this point. Yeah, for sure. Which makes it really interesting to read this book because I think a lot of Stephen King does come out in this. Uh, So Paul is finishing up his book in 
Colorado. In the movie, he's in like a little ski resort. And in the book, he's just at a hotel. And he finally finishes the book and decides, all right, it's time to leave now. Um, But unfortunately, a snowstorm is about to hit. Yes. In the book, he knows about it. But, you know, it was misreported that it was veering off course. And so he thought he was fine. In the film, he just didn't know. So he goes out driving and he gets hit with the snowstorm. In the book, he's actually kind of drunk. Yeah. And his car does a 180 and goes off the road into kind of over an embankment. And he ends up really banged up. Yes. And then he is rescued by a good Samaritan. Yes. Who just happened to be passing on the road. His knight in shining armor. Yes. Miss Annie Wilkes, who's a nurse, she tells him when he wakes up. And um, she tends to his injuries because she tells him in the movie that, oh, there's been a blizzard and we're snowed in, can't get you to the hospital, and the phone lines are down. Now, the information about Paul Sheldon's career, writing this book, his car accident, all of this is given to us in a completely different way in the book. Yes. it. I love the way this is written. It's mm-hmm. interspersed with Annie talking. Yeah. And she's describing, I think, the events of her finding him and carrying him back. Mm-hmm. So it's chunks of her dialogue And then intercut with chunks of his own internal narration. Yeah. But the way her dialogue ends and his narration begins, it kind of flows into each other. Yeah. It'll be her saying, and that's when I decided, and then him saying, to drive out west, even though I hadn't planned on doing that. And then, and that's when suddenly, and then it's her, I found you on, like, it keeps going. And it's just so interesting how those are written like Stephen King is having so much fun here and I love it (laughs) yeah I like this part a lot too I also think it's interesting because right away from the beginning of the book when Paul wakes up he's like I'm in trouble (laughs) like he wakes up from basically being in like a semi-conscious like kind of coma for a while because of his injuries his legs are completely shattered and he's like I can already tell that I am, one, addicted to whatever pain medicine she's been giving me this whole time. Yeah. And two, that this woman is crazy. Like, he knows it immediately. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, the movie and book play this off very differently, right? The book, or I'm sorry, the film plays it off more kind of building up the idea that Annie is crazy or unhinged. Yeah, I mean, she says she's a nurse, right? And she's like, I splinted your legs, I rescued you, and I'll, I'll bring you right to the hospital as soon as I can. The and roads are still yeah. all plowed in, and the phone lines are down. I promise, like, I'll do everything I can for you. And he's thinking, okay, you know, and she seems nice enough and, like, very, you know, she apprehensively tells him, oh, I'm your biggest fan, mm-hmm. but it seems, like, sincere enough, right? Yeah. In the book... He, like, it takes five minutes for him to be like, this woman is this nuts. This woman's nuts. <laughs> yeah. I'm so screwed. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's funny how little time King spends. And I love this, too, because there's, there's a certain amount of reality to this, too, right? Like, yeah. you just get a feel for people. You know when yeah. somebody, something's off about somebody. Yeah. And, like, I think, too, Stephen King has the time for us to spend in Paul's psyche, right? Yes. We hear so much about... His mental state, we hear so much about his ambitions as a writer, how he felt about the the misery books, all of this. And you really can't get that in a film. So I actually, I do think it works better in the movie to have him slowly realize that Annie is crazy. I, yeah, I think it works just too for the pacing of a film, right? Yeah. Because it really builds up to kind of the ending of the first act when mm-hmm. it's finally dawning on you just how unhinged Annie is and how much danger he's in. I, I think... 
both work equally well. Yeah. But both play to their strengths of film and book. Yeah. And like we said, his legs are totally shattered. He can't move them. He's in a, a lot of pain. And in the book... He's already addicted to these pills that she has. And we find out later that when she was a nurse, she would just like take a bunch of sample pills. Yeah, I mean, immediately in the book, he's thinking, why does she have all this like codeine based medication? Mm -hmm. That's weird, right? (laughs) Even for a nurse. Yeah. I want to talk here, too, a little bit about how this book deals with something that was relevant at the time for sure, but has only become more relevant over the years. And that's parasocial relationships. Mm. This idea of someone being a fan of a creator's work and feeling like they know that person, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that thinking, oh, if only I got to talk to this person, we'd have so much in common and feeling like you know them. Yeah. And I know King has dealt with this in real life. You know, you get people who uh, will – he'll have people come up to him and be like, oh, my God, like I love your work, blah, Mm -hmm. blah, blah. And he's like – all right, I'm just trying to buy milk, but yeah. that's fine. Thank you. And Well, and I mean, this is the thing with like celebrity and fame, right? And it's even worse with social media. Exactly, yeah. Now where people think that celebrities owe them things, like you were saying, when they're just trying to like buy groceries or be out and about and people think that, oh, I'm owed a hug, a photo, yes. this personal encounter. And it's just people trying to live their lives Um, And it can turn really ugly. You know, we have stalking, harassment, we have death threats, we have, you know, uh, targeted bullying campaigns online. We have like so much now, but I think King is tapping into this very early. I mean, literally just this week, I read about James Cameron being uh, people were mad at him because he didn't sign autographs at the Avatar premiere. (laughs) Now, apparently he flipped off people that were like waiting so like that wasn't necessary but I mean that dynamic of people feeling like they're owed something Mm -hmm. right and with social media and we've heard this based on our podcast too yeah friends have told us like oh my god I felt like I was just hanging out with you because I was listening to the podcast yeah I mean we love podcasts that I think we have that dynamic with a bit too right yeah you kind of feel like you know the people Mm mm-hmm so what I'm saying is you right now, you're you listening to this podcast right now, you're being pulled into a parasocial relationship and it's toxic and you should stop right now. What are you saying? <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with feeling that parasocial relationship and no. acknowledging it. What the problem is when you think that you are owed something. Yes. Um, when it's really just a one way relationship, yeah. right? Yeah, this is like really interesting. I love in the in the movie, Annie has like a little shrine yes. to Paul. She has like all his books on this mantle. An autographed photo. Yeah, photo of him. It's very creepy and it's Th- cluing us in, right? This was one of those moments where in the film when you saw that, I thought, why wasn't that in the book? I know. That feels like such an obvious thing that she would have like a little setup for all her misery novels that like yes. Paul could see. And mm-hmm. that felt like such a great inclusion in the film that like the book almost missed out on. Yeah. Uh, Annie is like, hey, I noticed you have this manuscript. (laughs) Would I be able to read it? And in the book, he's like, "Uh, there's literally nothing I can say because uh, I can't refuse you. Doesn't isn't she holding his medication? Yeah, and isn't handing it to him. She's kind of withholding it a little bit. And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Give me my pills. Um, and in the movie, he's kind of like not quite sure that she's crazy yet. And so he's like, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> so he has this great line where he says, oh, I only let my publicist read my first draft and also people who saved my life. 
<laughs> like, he's being real charming still yeah. at this point. Yeah, performing. Yes. Mm-hmm. James Caan <laughs> as Paul yeah. is top tier casting. He's, he's great. so good. Mm-hmm. And he says so much with just a look. His face. With an expression. Yeah, he always just looks like he is, like, about to, like, side-eye someone else in (laughs) the room and be like, are you seeing what I'm seeing right now? Yeah, like, when she throws soup and he just looks at the soup and you just know he's thinking, like, oh, my God, (laughs) this bitch is crazy. Yeah. And here's the thing, Adina. I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this, but James Caan is playing the exact same character he plays in the movie Elf. Yes, it's the same. He's the, it's the, and it's like the same situation, <laughs> yeah. right? He's a very normal man. Dealing with a crazy person. Dealing with a crazy person <laughs> and like dealing with it with like sarcasm. Yes. And like the occasional sideways glance <laughs> and like, can you believe what I'm dealing with right now? Uh, how holiday appropriate of us, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> like, I genuinely think misery is what got him the role <laughs> Of Elf, arguably the more famous of the two roles. Yeah, and I mean, I like his portrayal, but it is different than the book. Yes. Because in the book, Paul is a lot less, like, composed, I would say. We meet Paul, and he's already a wreck, right? (laughs) Like, he's already like, I am addicted to pills. Mm -hmm. This woman is crazy. I will do anything to get these pills from this woman. And also, it's just going to get worse for me. Like, I'm starting out low, and I'm going to sink lower and lower and lower. And I feel like James Caan, even with everything that happens to him as Paul in the movie, kind of retains this sense of self and, like, assurance to him. Yeah, watching how much the character of the novel just, like... Disintegrates. Disintegrates, yeah, evaporates before your eyes, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, James Caan definitely keeps his composure throughout, which is, like quite different. I will say, though, that it's funny. Rob Reiner as a director, mm-hmm. right? What One of the weirdest and most diverse directors yes. I can think of. <laughs> I mean, he's done really ridiculous, absurd comedies like This is Spinal Tap. Mm-hmm. Rom-coms like When Harry Met Sally. Mm-hmm. He did Stand By Me. Yeah. Uh, Misery, which is arguably his darkest film. Mm-hmm. But... As far as, at least for his movies that I'm aware of, he always retains a certain amount of humor, right? Yeah. And that is one thing I love about this adaptation is he finds the dark humor of it all really well. Yeah. It's a very funny movie in a lot of ways. It is. And you could almost argue it's like a dark comedy to an (laughs) extent. And I think a huge amount of that is James Caan's performance. Yeah, for sure. But I I do love that about Rob Reiner as a director is he always finds the comedy in whatever he's doing. Mm Mm-hmm. No matter what genre. Well, I think that is important for a movie like this to have little moments like that. <laughs> yeah. Because it is pretty bleak. It's so absurd and violent and dark, and but the, the humor makes it so watchable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Annie finishes or starts at least to read this manuscript and is immediately like, I hate this. <laughs> yeah. There's a bunch of swear words, it, the narration's all over the place, and she gets really upset. And there's this scene where she is feeding him soup and they're kind of arguing about this novel and she ends up throwing the soup into the corner. Just gets up and throws it in the book. Yeah. In the film, she just spills some of it and yells at him. And this is our first clue that she's maybe a little dangerous, a little unhinged. Mm -hmm. But in the book, she 
breaks the bowl into the corner and insists on having to like clean it before she gives him his medication. Yeah. She's taking her like sweet ass time cleaning up the wall. Yeah. And at one point it seems like it's done and she says, now I have to rinse. Yeah. And this line keeps coming up. Now I must rinse. Now I must rinse throughout Mm -hmm. the book. Just inserted in random parts. Mm -hmm. And it's so fascinating. I love the way King does that. Yeah. Uh, And it ends with her giving him his pills, but she makes him drink from the uh, mop water. Yeah. To wash them down. Yeah. She forces it. Yes. Yeah. And he drinks it. And, and it, so he's like, I mean, he's already at the bottom, right? He's it, it, drinking soapy water. He's yes. like, I have no leverage. And he's thinking like, I'll never tell anyone about this when I get out of here. This yeah. is the most, <laughs> uh, this is the worst thing I've ever had to deal with in my life. <laughs> Things get a little worse because Annie's also reading the next Misery novel that just came out. Yeah. And little does she know that uh, Misery dies at the end of it because Paul is done writing Misery books. He's so finished with Misery. (laughs) She reads it and freaks the fuck out. She has kind of a meltdown about Misery dying. Calls him a dirty bird. I love, I love all her words. Yeah. It's so funny because the one I remember more than any from the movie specifically is her calling him Mr. Man. Oh, yeah. And I thought that was like her go-to phrase, but I think she only says it once. I know. But her (laughs) saying Mr. Man is what sticks in my head the most. (laughs) Yeah. uh, In the movie, she ends up like throwing this plant stand in the corner. Mm -hmm. Like it looks like she's going to hit him with it. Yes. And then she doesn't. And then she's like, I need to leave because I might hurt you. And this moment in the movie is actually a, a turning point because she tells him no one knows you're here. And no one's ever going to find you. Yeah, she had been lying to him. She claimed that when she went to town, she called his agent, that the hospital still wasn't open, so she couldn't get him there. So it still seemed reasonable what was going on. Mm-hmm. But at this point, she confesses, no, you're, I'm your captor. I had to think about that. You're my captive. <laughs> yes. I'm your captor. That's how it goes. You're never leaving. You're never leaving. In the book, she ends up just freaking out and then... She says, I have to leave. And she is gone for 51 hours. So this man who can't get out of bed uh, has no food, no water. He's addicted to pills, so he doesn't have those either. He's going through withdrawal. And when she comes back from her trip, she has a proposition for him. Yes, but first she has to make him burn the only copy of his manuscript that he has. Yeah, I think this is really interesting because in the book, she won't let give him his pills until he burns it. Yeah. And he's already been without it for so long and he's experiencing so many like horrible symptoms in addition to his pain. The yeah. withdrawal is really bad. And so he burns it. Yeah. I mean, he resists for as long as he can. Mm-hmm. And I love his internal struggle with this, right? He's thinking, who am I impressing right now by pretending to have some kind of moral about doing this obviously i have no choice i have to do it at some point she has all the power but he's kind of holding out for as long as he can yeah but eventually ends up doing it i mean he's so weak Mm -hmm. and in so much pain he can hardly hold the match yeah to set it on fire Mm -hmm. and in the film he tries to bluff his way out of it yeah and he says well i mean i will obviously because i have other copies in new york (laughs) and i love this because in the in the book, he never does bluff. He yeah. thinks later that he should have tried, but mm-hmm. he didn't think about it. But in the film, he does. And Annie goes, 
Paul, come on. I know that you only have one copy of every book that you wrote after you write it because that's what you did on your first book and you think that it's bad luck to make copies. You said this on a talk show one time that I watched. So like kind of cementing her obsessive knowledge of him (laughs) and like his practices, right? And I love when she's, you know, putting the lighter fluid on his, you know, untitled manuscript on the barbecue grill. And then she starts kind of throwing lighter fluid on him. Mm -hmm. And it's a very active threat. Like we could burn the manuscript or we could (laughs) burn something else. Yes. And I love it almost seems casually like she's not paying attention. She's just flinging it. Yeah. The book describes this a lot more how Annie will go into these states of kind of vacantness where she just zones out Mm -hmm. and stares off into the distance and her eyes kind of go dead. Yeah. And Paul can't talk to her or reach her and Mm -hmm. she just has to naturally come out of it. Talks about like her switching off, you know, or like drifting away and then coming back and it just being another creepy element of her psychosis. Let's talk about Buster. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, Buster, an original character to the film. Mm -hmm. He is the local sheriff. The film is kind of more contained within Silver Creek, the town. And so the publicist calls the sheriff there when Paul goes missing. Mm -hmm. And is like, I know he was finishing his manuscript there. And in fact, Annie mentions in the film that she knew where Paul wrote his books. And was following him. Yeah, and was, which I guess kind of makes, a not makes sense, but gives more of a reason as to why his number one fan would have been the one to find him. Yeah. You know, wrecked on the side of the road. I don't think the book needs that explanation, but the film, I, I think it makes sense to justify why she was the one to come across him. Yeah, so the um, sheriff is sort of looking into the disappearance, right? Yeah. And he's looking for the car. He thinks that maybe he had a wreck with the snowstorm that happened. We have him and his deputy wife, <laughs> who I love. They're it's, so great. Their banter is hilarious. She just wants them to fuck. And he's like, I'm trying to do my job, Virginia. <laughs> this The movie rides the line so well of it being too corny, yes. too like a little over the top, but it, it it's still within the bounds of the film and mm-hmm. it's still like, I love their characters so much. Yeah, at first when he's looking for the car, he's not able to find it because the snow is too high and then later on, he's doing like a helicopter sweep um, and he ends up spotting the vehicle and he can see like the marks of the pry bar she used to pull him out. I, I really like the way the film... I think the film does a great job of giving clues to Buster Mm -hmm. that something else is going on, that Paul didn't just wander into the wilderness. Yeah. But he's not obsessed with the case, right? Mm -hmm. It's just kind of in the back of his mind, right? Yeah, he keeps at it. Yeah, it's not something that he's really strongly pursuing, Mm -hmm. but he decides at one point, you know what, I'm just going to buy these misery novels. Yeah. And I'm going to read them. Just see what happens. See what comes up. And his wife kind of makes fun of him. Mm -hmm. But as he's reading them, he notices a line that he writes down. And you don't know why he writes it down at first. Mm -hmm. But then later, he spots Annie in town yelling at someone. (laughs) And then he's like, hmm. And he goes to the newspaper archives, Mm -hmm. looks back at this case that she was involved in, and sees that she quoted that specific line from the book. Mm -hmm. So I love just... 
it's just kind of something he's like in the back of his mind always kind of like because I mean this is months right months pass Mm -hmm. between when Paul disappears and when he finds him yeah and I love this idea of an old sheriff who isn't exactly energetic Mm -hmm. but is smart he's experienced yeah and he kind of knows how to like work away at something yeah to keep going on the case and keep following different different leads and and see where they take him yeah and Annie, after the manuscript is burned, is like, okay, this is your chance to make things right. Mm-hmm. I have a typewriter for you, and I have a wheelchair. You are going to write Misery's Return. <laughs> you are going to bring her back from the dead. And Paul is like, oh, fuck. <laughs> God damn it. it. And he just kind of knows he has no choice in mm-hmm. the matter, but is also telling her, I killed Misery. Yeah. And she says, well, bring her back. There's this incident where he comments on the paper quality that she's brought to him. Yeah. And he's like, this is uh, not a good paper stock because it smudges the ink. And he's honestly being like pretty chill about it. Yeah. And then Annie is like, oh, sure. The paper's not right. Great. And then she just slams (laughs) onto his knee, which is already shattered. Yeah. Destroys it. And then leaves. I Annie is such a compelling villain, right? Because she's not motivated by... I mean, she's motivated by the book and getting it written, right? But in terms of her mood, she has no... She doesn't respond to things with any intention, right? Yeah. And she's... Bipolar isn't the right... Like, she has bipolar tendencies, but her problems are way beyond that. Yeah. But you just never know how she's going to respond to something, right? Mm -hmm. And that makes you, like, so on edge about everything. Yeah. I think especially in the book. For sure. Yeah, and so she takes off, and she's going to get the new paper. And for Paul, this is a chance for him to try to get out of the room. Because he's been locked in. And he's been stuck in bed this whole time, and now he's in the wheelchair. And so it's an opportunity for him to be mobile, to maybe try to break out of the room. In the book, he's really trying to get some pills because of the pain (laughs) of his knee, of what she did to him. And in in the movie, I think he's just using the opportunity to try to escape. Yeah, so he finds a hairpin that fell out of her hair. And uses it to pick the lock. He escapes. He's exploring her house. Mm -hmm. He discovers a few things immediately. First of all, the phone is fake. Yeah. I love in the film, he's like, you crazy bitch. (laughs) It's just empty inside. (laughs) God, James Caan is so funny in this. And the the doors are padlocked. And also it's winter. Like, he couldn't escape even if he wanted to. Yeah. But he does manage to get a hold of some pills. Mm -hmm. He also manages to knock over a penguin. A tiny penguin figurine. A tiny ceramic penguin and puts it back. Now, here's the thing, Adina. In the film, he puts it back. Every other animal on that table know. is facing the same direction. Yeah. Come on. And he puts it in the wrong direction. Yeah. Come on. Come on. You got to be more careful. Yeah. It's so obvious in the movie anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting because he also takes the pills in the movie, but he's not taking them to take them. He's taking them to hoard them. In the movie, he's actually weaning himself off the pills. Yes. And starts accumulating them. And you kind of realize that he he makes like a little pouch out of a piece of paper. Yes. And he's like, you know, taking the, the powder out of them and keeping them for some purpose. And 
because he's not really addicted to the pills in the movie. But in the book, he literally is just like, I'm going to take a bunch of these. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Maybe I'll kill myself. I don't know yet. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah, I I think it's smart because it's not that he isn't proactive in the book, right? I mean, he's escaping when he can. He's always yeah. trying to think of, like, what can I do to escape? What are my options? Things like that. In the film, though, it makes sense that you would want him to be formulating a plan more early on. And to have an idea of what that might be. Yeah, and even though you don't entirely know at the beginning, you understand at least later on that he's planning on poisoning her with the capsules, right? Mm-hmm. Because even after the one, he takes those from the medicine cabinet, he starts mouthing the ones that she gives him yeah. and squirreling those away in the mattress. Mm-hmm. It is funny, though, because in the book... He specifically is thinking, I can't poison her with these. Yeah. He tastes the powder on its own. And I it's, know. <laughs> it's extremely bitter. And he thinks, I can't put this in anything that she won't notice. Yeah. So this entire subplot <laughs> isn't in the book. Mm-hmm. But it makes sense that in the film you would include it because you as the audience would be like. He needs to do something. Yeah, use the pills. She's giving you pills. You yeah. can drug her. <laughs> you know, you would be thinking that. So yeah. I, I think both make sense in their own way. For sure. So, you know, he gets a regular paper that he wants and he's (laughs) like, okay, you got to start this book. And I love this in the book so much because we get snippets of this misery novel that he's writing. And so we get these like typewriter typed pages that are from his attempts to write this misery novel. And this is his first attempt. And I love it because it's so over the top, like romantic and, <laughs> yeah. and like cliche. And he knows it when he's writing it. Yes. He writes like, oh, the doctor who we didn't think was going to come in time actually made it and misery's okay and she's happy and she's kissing her lover and it's like so romantic. <laughs> and he thinks, oh, if thank God the doctor came because if he hadn't. So he's essentially retconning his own last book yeah. in order because the last book ended with Misery fucking buried in the ground. Yeah, dying in childbirth. Yeah, so in his mind, he's thinking, okay, I'll just act as if that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So you get to read this. And by the way, I, it's so funny because in, I think it's in both versions. The, the letter N on the typewriter is broken. Yeah. And so in the book, all these passages are written kind of in the courier typewriter font. Yes. Except every N is replaced with like a handwritten N, <laughs> which is just so funny. Like, I know I talked about how the movie like takes a more comedic approach to the source material, but there's a lot of dark humor in the book as well. For sure. I love that too. That little detail about the N. He gives this first chapter to Annie and he's like, here you go. This is what you want. And she comes back and she's like, it's not right. Mm-hmm. You're cheating. And she tells this story about growing up and watching these chapter plays at the movie theater. Yeah, before the film begins. Mm-hmm. And they were, uh, it was a rocket man. And it was always rocket man in some kind of crazy situation. He's trying to get away from the bad guys and they get him in a bind and it always leaves on a cliffhanger. And then you watch the next one. And the next one always starts where the first, the one before it left off where he's in this jam yeah. and then they show how he gets out of it. And, like, the metaphor in the book that's mentioned is, like, oh, he has a parachute under his seat, right? Yes. <laughs> and how that is maybe, like, an easy escape, but it's fair, yeah. right? And she keeps using that example. That was fair, mm-hmm. him having a parachute. But in the example she uses, he was in a car that was welded shut going off a cliff. And in the last episode, you see the car crashing. Yeah. And in the next episode, 
Suddenly he escapes before the car crashes. Yeah. And she stands up in the theater as a child and screams how that isn't how the last episode went. That Mm -hmm. was cheap. And that was I I love this part because in both versions, she's giving this insight to what she was like as a child. Yeah. And you can see her obsessive personality and Mm -hmm. kind of how unhinged she was back then. Also, how much of the ego is in is within her. And this is part of her, you know, being this deep psychosis, right? Yes. Like, she's a sociopath, right? She thinks of everything through the lens of herself only. And to her, it was like this injustice that didn't feel right to her. So, of course, she's going to stand up in the theater and start screaming because it's not right and she has to express that to the world. Yeah. But just, like, how important this is to her and how she inflicts her sense of right and wrong onto other people. Yes. like in a th- And she talks about, oh, my brother who I was with tried to calm me down, but yeah. I wouldn't calm down. And mm-hmm. uh, two things I want to mention here. The first is that I love this idea, right, of her being like actually a genuinely good critic in this instance. The idea of I'm willing to accept a very extreme situation that brings her back to life. Right. But you have to play by the rules. You have to work within. You have to convince me. Yeah. You have to work within the canon that you established in the last book Mm -hmm. and work within these parameters. Right. Yeah. And we see this a lot in modern day with movies that are sequels to old films mm-hmm. that are by new directors. And, and movie- they change things. Yeah, and movies that erase certain sequels but adhere to other sequels. And, like, that's kind of an interesting modern thing, right? The second thing is, I love this movie, right? It's a great film. One of the only things I don't love about it is the score, the mm, music. Really? Well, you know, there's so many scenes, right, where Annie starts to show her true colors, right? Yeah. And you have this, a literal Oscar-worthy performance, because Kathy Bates won an Oscar for this film, Mm -hmm. where she starts to get riled up, right? Or starts to get a little creepy. Yeah. And her performance is so good, and it's so obvious what's going on. Mm -hmm. And yet, in so many of these moments, the score kicks in. Yeah. And you get these tense violin chords or like kind of these like unsettling musical like the score of the film feels like it's trying so hard it's to be like too hard you should be like something's going on yeah like you you know she's going crazy right now it feels like it's really overreaching to tell you in these moments mm-hmm. that something's off yeah but in this moment in the film this tangent she goes on her telling this story it's one of the few moments in the film where there isn't a score and i think it works so much better yeah that's an interesting point because all you have is her performance and the 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 camera movement is this like really tight push in on Mm -hmm. her where it's like right under her face by the end of this like story yeah and between those two things i think you get the picture so much more and it's less hitting you over the head with it Mm -hmm. because i think in other parts it just feels like it's trying so hard to tell you to be unsettled. Yes. When the score doesn't, there's enough going on with the performance. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a thing of the time, right? Like mm-hmm. films in the 90s probably felt the need to do that more with the musical score, whereas modern day films are much more willing to like pull back, step back. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting point. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. I noticed it a little bit at the beginning, but I didn't pay as much attention to it. As I was watching it later on. Well, you know, there are parts where I think the score being tense is more 
justified mm-hmm. like when he's snooping around her house yes. and she's coming back yeah and we get the cutting back and forth between her and the mm-hmm. car and him and there's like that really intense excited like i think moments like that the score are way better yeah but i think especially early on when the script seems to be telling you hey this is still okay mm-hmm. right like she's maybe a little weird but he's not in danger yet he thinks everything's fine yeah she's a little weird but the score almost feels like it's compensating to be like, things are going to go south any minute now. Yeah. So that's like my own, one of my only criticisms of the entire film. He acknowledges her point, right? He's like, okay, you know what? You're crazy. But actually, <laughs> I, I kind of agree with what you're saying. Right? Yeah. It is kind of a cheat. So he goes back to the drawing board and ends up writing a much darker and more gothic tale to bring Misery back. And we get... In the book, we get to read this chapter where one of the characters is suddenly like, oh, my God, what if we buried Misery alive? Yeah. What if she's not dead? And the chapter ends with him and this, like, servant woman, like, literally going to, like, dig her up yeah. out of the ground. It's so gothic. It's the middle of the night. It's raining. <laughs> right? It's creepy. Yeah. I love the vibes. I mean, this is like pages and pages of this in the book. Yeah. And I love it because you genuinely get absorbed in it. I know. I'm like, I kind of want to read this. I know. Like, <laughs> you're just reading it. And when it ends, you almost are like, wait, I want to, what, what's happening? What's I, happening? Tell me what happens. Keep going. And I think that's so crucial, especially in the book, to establishing the motivation, right? Because mm-hmm. so much of the plot revolves around him finishing this book, Annie wanting it to be finished. The book being written is so important. And it almost tricks you as the reader into being invested yourself for that moment. I know. You're like, what's going to happen in the story? You're like, I relate because (laughs) I want to know. What's going on with misery? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, We have the dinner in the movie. Yes. (laughs) What a what a meal. What a what a what an eventful time. Yes. Poor Paul has a plan and he asks Annie to have dinner with him. And this is really leaning into the like romantic aspect of Annie's character that she's like obsessed with him maybe he's in love with him and he's kind of flirting with her yeah um in order to try to catch her off her guard and then put the like pills like in her drink basically um but I I find this really interesting because he is kind of trying to encourage this a little bit yeah whereas I don't think we see this very much in the book that's a good point yeah he doesn't try to seduce her as much in the book. Yeah. But it's interesting because she says, and this line's in the film too, where she says, I love you, Paul. And then she clarifies, I love your mind. Yeah. And what you create with misery. Mm-hmm. And I do get that sense of she is in a way romantically attracted to him. Yeah. But also not. Mm-hmm. The idea that it's not really him. Yeah. That she's drawn it's to. It's what he can give her. Yeah. And that. Even if he did, like, literally try to seduce her, I don't know if she would go with it. Yeah. Because it's not necessarily him. Yeah. And I think the movie plays that up really well. For sure. I love this moment, though, when he spikes her drink, and then she comes back, and they're about to toast, and then she knocks the drink over accidentally. And James Caan's face, (laughs) as he's just, like, he's just stunned. Like, his whole... Like, all this planning and effort on his part is suddenly gone up in smoke. It's very similar uh, when Buddy the Elf tells him that he plans on staying uh, (laughs) for the rest of his life in his house. Similar vibes, you know. Just the deep-seated dread and horror of that moment. Yeah, 
for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I love this idea that he had a great plan. He executed it perfectly, and it was just dumb luck. Yeah, that saved her. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's it's perfect. And he's writing the book now, and I like that in the book, he actually things are like fine between them. Like I like that the book talks about how. It's a period of time where they're kind of getting along. Yeah. If they ignore the circumstances that they're in, like the book talks about how they will eat lunch together. They'll watch like TV together. You know, she'll bring him his meals and his pills and he'll go and he'll write. And he actually feels inspired. He's suddenly finding that drive within himself to write. And this is actually really therapeutic for him and really helpful, helpful for him. Because he feels like this is an escape. Yes. He describes in the in the book how there's a hole in the paper yeah. that he escapes through. Mm-hmm. And it, it, this image is brought up multiple times, the hole in the paper and him falling through and it. And sometimes it's a really small hole mm-hmm. when it's hard to write. And he's like peeking through it. Yeah. And other times it's huge and he just falls right in. Yeah. I, I love this part so much. The book just is so much about what it means to be a writer, what it means to be a creative, mm-hmm. how in a lot of ways it's selfish, but it's an escape. It's mm-hmm. a means of like your livelihood. It's how you make money. You know, Paul wrote these novels that in a way he didn't have any respect for because the writing community is, doesn't have much respect for romance yeah. or period piece fiction. But in a way – Him writing this book is reminding him of when he first began writing Misery and that in a way he does enjoy it. In a way he like likes these characters and falling back into this. And the creative process itself being like something that he just falls into. I mean, you know, Stephen King goes on and on and there's portions where he talk compares it to jacking off. And I'm like, okay, Stephen (laughs) King, like, let's just speed it up a little bit. To be fair, though, that's like (laughs) farther in the book when he's like losing it more yeah but i this is not the first time that stephen king has probably compared writing to jacking (laughs) off probably not (laughs) there's also he mentions like trying to get ideas for plot and things and he talks about the little men down below like in the sewers and the furnaces of his mind who Mm -hmm. are like really working and like that they need to like send like a flare up to the top of his mind yeah you know and kind of like give him a signal give him a sign i just love all these metaphors for writing here and he talks to about a thousand and one nights and the mythology of this woman who's telling a story every night yeah. so that she isn't killed. And he's literally like, I am telling this story every day so Annie doesn't murder me. Yes. But he's also telling the story every day and writing the story every day for himself to keep himself going and to keep himself from going crazy and to keep himself from wanting to die. Stephen King just writes really well about writing and it, he writes another book that's all about it called on writing but that's it, true <laughs> a lot of his characters are writers yeah and i mean it makes sense right like you write what you know specifically but i just enjoy his insights on writing and his insights into authors for sure and i mean this plot utilizes like the writing into the plot so well. Like you said, he's writing to survive. Yeah. So I think reading about that process is more fascinating. Mm -hmm. It feels more intentional and immediate. Yeah. And I think that helps the plot a lot. Mm -hmm. So at this point, we see 
you know, we were saying things are going well between him and Annie. He's writing. Their yeah. dynamic's going good. But then he sees that she goes through kind of a mood swing. Yeah, for no apparent reason that he can determine, suddenly one day she just looks wrong. Yeah. Like, there's clearly something going on. In the book and the movie, she's kind of disheveled. Her hair is a mess. And in the book, she actually starts to, like, hit herself and hurt yeah. herself in front of him. And Paul is like, all right, this might, this might be uh, this might be the end. <laughs> and she's just in a really bad place, it seems like. I think this is something that makes her character so dangerous and unsettling is the fact that he can't outsmart her, right? Because when she's in a mood, yeah. anything he says will be taken the wrong way. Yeah. If she wants to, she's going to take her anger out on him. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what he says. It just depends on what mood she's in. I think that that is such a great point because it seemed like everything was going so well for them and that he was doing everything right and everything he could to appease her. Yeah. And yet it's all out of his control because of her psychosis. I really love um, Stephen King kind of talking about her state of mind at this point. There's this really unsettling scene where she comes in with like a rat in a trap. Yeah. And ends up just like squeezing it to death. Yeah, in the book. In the book. And so he. I'm just going to read a part of the book. He had seen her low before, but he'd seen nothing like this. He wondered if she'd ever had a low as low as this before. This was how depressives got just before shooting all the members of their families, themselves last. It was the psychotic despair of the woman who dresses her children in their best, takes them out for ice cream, walks them down to the nearest bridge, lifts one into the crook of each arm, and jumps over the side. Depressives kill themselves. Psychotics rocked in the poison cradles of their own egos, want to do everyone handy a favor and take them along. I'm closer to death than I've ever been in my life, he thought, because she means it. The bitch means it. (laughs) (laughs) So good. But I love that distinction between depressives and psychotics. Yes, and so many books and shows still do this, right? Where because someone is mentally ill in any way... Yeah, they're sad, And they're going to kill people. They're going to kill everyone and they're dangerous. Yeah. I love that he really clarifies this isn't even a bipolar person. Yeah. This is a sociopath. Yes. This is a psychotic. This is really dangerous, right? Yeah. She is seeming like she wants to kill him or kill herself and eventually is like, okay, I need to like get out of here. I need to go away. And in the book, she's like... (laughs) I have a place that I go when I get like this. It's a place out in the woods, in the mountains, where no one can find me. I call it my laughing place. (laughs) Which is the creepiest (laughs) thing she could ever say. Apparently it's based... From Br'er Rabbit? Br'er Rabbit, yeah, which I'm unfamiliar with. But yeah, yeah, it's like her escape called the laughing place. Even (laughs) though she says she does mostly crying and screaming there. Yeah, she's like, but mostly I just scream. (laughs) And I'm like, ah! <laughs> and Paul is just lying in bed, like nodding, mm-hmm, like, okay, mm-hmm. yep, yep, all right, you do that. You have a good time. I'll be fine. <laughs> I'll just be right here. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, in the book, she kind of is contemplating killing both of them in that moment. Yeah. And he has to talk her out of it. Mm-hmm. And in the film, she alludes to the idea that maybe she would do it, but is leaving so that she doesn't. Yes. And she leaves him. And this is, to Paul, another chance to get out and see if there's any way to escape. And this is where he's like, 
looking more closely at the doors, seeing if there's any possible way he can get out of them. He already knows the phone doesn't work. And then he ends up taking a knife from the kitchen because he's like, I mean, I think it's just going to come down to me and her and I need to be ready. Uh, Clearly, she has a gun and might shoot me and herself at Mm -hmm. any moment. But as he's getting the knife and wheeling himself back to his room, he spots a little scrapbook called Memory Memory Lane. (laughs) Memory Lane. (laughs) Memory. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, who in his situation would not just have to know what the backstory of Annie Wilkes is? Yes. This is uh, her murder book. Yep. It is just a scrapbook of all the people she's killed, starting... With this family that she babysat for in the book where she's like, yeah, they were really annoying brats and she sets the apartment on fire. Yes. And almost the entire family dies. (laughs) That was her beginning. That was her origin. Yeah. She later orchestrated. I mean, so obviously these are newspaper clippings. So you have to infer that she did this since she kept the newspaper clippings of these murders. Mm -hmm. Her father fell down a flight of steps due to some laundry and broke his neck. Yes, and then her roommate in nursing school had a similar type of death. This is very like The Bad Seed, which is like it an is. old movie. I didn't know you knew The Bad Seed. Yes. My dad made, well, my dad, <laughs> he didn't make me watch it. I enjoyed it, but my dad had me watch it. Yeah, I remember the falling, the being pushed or falling down the steps thing. Yes. Spoiler for The Bad Seed. <laughs> also, the ending of The Bad Seed is like amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so good. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. But this was Annie as a child. It was. She was the bad seed. Truly. <laughs> Which doesn't the girl in the bad seed set fire to? Oh, yeah. I think it's actually that exact situation. Oh, my I think God. It's like from a basement. Stephen King. Stephen King. <laughs> We're on to you. He's stealing from the bad seed. <laughs> um, but we read in this scrapbook about her career as a nurse traveling from hospital ha- to hospital. And then she just includes... All these random obituaries, and we're meant to believe that she's like, every person that I've ever killed, I'll just include their obituary in this convenient scrapbook in case the police ever question me and, like, can find this. Why not? Yeah. So it, it's just a a montage in book form of her going across the country, mm-hmm. staying a couple years here, a couple years there, murdering a couple people here, a couple there. Yeah, but everybody's already in the hospital, right? So their dying is not quite as suspicious as you might think. No. The book actually kind of makes the case here that she's doing it because she thinks they're in pain. Yes. And in her mind, she's doing them a favor. And this is, again, drawing back to her psychosis, right? The sociopathic tendencies were in her mind, she is the only person that matters. Yeah. And her perception is the only one that matters. So she thinks they're in pain and that they should be put out of their misery. She does it. Also, the fact that it's painting her actions in a good light to herself. It's almost how she's justifying it to herself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so she's murdering all these people that are either near death or are really ill or old, battling long illnesses until when she's in Colorado and she is the head of a uh, children's ward. Yeah. And a lot of them start dying by chance. Yeah. It turns out people care a lot more about babies than old people. Yeah. Also, it's a lot (laughs) harder to explain why they're just dying for no reason. Yeah. And then he finds these newspaper clippings about this trial, right, where they're accusing her of killing these babies. And, like, they can't quite prove it. And so she gets off. Yeah. But 
this being her past is so upsetting. And he's like, all right, well, time to go back to the old room. <laughs> like, let's go. <laughs> if I was hesitating about using this knife before, I am not now. Yeah. So he kind of prepares himself, right? And yeah. he's in the book, he has to get food and water and things while she's gone. But he's like, I'm ready to stab. I've been I'm fully committed now. Yeah. The movie, he's got the knife in his arm sling. Yes. And he's like practicing, like whipping it out. His quick draw. Yeah. <laughs> no, you just have to whip it out. Yeah. <laughs> I love in the film, she returns, but doesn't come into the room. Yeah. And so he's forced to just kind of like go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. And in the book, she kind of like returns in the dead of night with her lights on her car turned off to like kind of surprise him yeah but i think the film almost makes more sense of it right Mm -hmm. she's like i'm just not gonna go into the room yet i'm gonna throw him off yeah yes and so begins the scene right the famous infamous is the scene yeah in both the book and the movie where paul wakes up and she's right there yeah, and she sticks him with a syringe, mm-hmm. dopes him up. I love in the film, I mean, in the book, it's explained that he just, like, he can't move, right? Yeah, yeah. In the film, he wakes up and he's just strapped down to the bed. <laughs> yeah. And you just know, oh, shit. Yes. She's like, I know you've been leaving the room. You put the penguin in the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> I left my scrapbook out for you. I know you would read it. Like, I know you read it. I love in the book that she intentionally left the scrapbook out and she actually put strands of her hair mm-hmm. over the opening of the book yeah. so that she would know if it was opened. Yeah. And it's like, wow, that was really smart. But then she keeps on asking, how many times did you leave the room? And he's like, three, three. And he keeps sticking to that. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I know it was more than that. I had strands of hair all over this place. I had them upstairs. I had them in the shed. Yeah. And he's like. What are you talking about? I couldn't get to those places. I'm still in my wheelchair. I can't get up the steps. Yeah. And I love it's this contrast of her being really clever, but also completely delusional. Yes. On one hand, she was smart (laughs) enough to like set set that traps. But then also she set other traps and she doesn't even know how to read them. Yeah. I know. It's so crazy. And there's nothing he can do. And he's trying to talk his way out of it. He's like, I'm sorry. Like, you know, don't do anything. And she tells this little story about slaves working in a diamond mine in South Africa or something crazy. And I'm like, okay, Annie. Um, (laughs) And she's like, oh, when they stole from the diamond mine, they would have to hobble them. And in... The book and the movie, hobbling means something a little bit different. Yes. uh, In the film, she has placed a block of wood between his legs. Mm -hmm. I love in the film, I was just complaining about the score, right? Yeah. But in this scene, and I I feel like this is a piece of music not composed for the film because it feels very different. Mm -hmm. But this kind of beautiful but disturbing music is playing. Yeah. It's very serene, but upsetting given the context of it but it's playing as she's telling this story and putting this wood between his ankles mm-hmm. and then she lifts up the sledgehammer yeah and proceeds to break his ankles yeah re-break his legs it is so uh when you watch his leg snap, go off yeah Ugh. just gives you a visceral reaction it's awful um the book is a little bit different if you haven't read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of the sledgehammer, she has an axe. Yeah. 
and she chops his foot off. Yeah. And Adina, there I read this book like 10 years ago, right? <laughs> but there are things about it. There are certain parts yes. that lodged themselves in my brain. Of course. And this was for sure one of them. Yes. There's a part where he watches as she takes his foot away. And he looks at a scar yeah. on the underside of his foot where he cut his foot when he was a kid. And he watches it walk away from Be him. Be carried away from him. Yeah. Just that idea of, like, connecting himself personally with, like, his own foot. Yeah. But watching it being carried away from the rest of his body Mm -hmm. is just so visceral and just upsetting. And also just the description of it takes two swings to cut through his leg. Yeah. And on the second swing, like, the axe gets planted in the mattress. Yeah. And he hears the axe scrape against the bed springs. Mm -hmm. And just that description. Yeah. Yeah. Stuck in my brain for years. Yeah, and if that's not enough, because uh, she can't, like, she can't fix the wound by any other way, she says, other than cauterizing it. So she just blowtorches his leg, his stump, uh, and so he burns him. And so, yeah, that is what happens in the book. It's (laughs) very different. Yes. Now, here's my one thing, though, Adina, is the scene in the film is iconic, right? Yeah. Here's my one beef, though. It doesn't really change anything. Yeah. Because up until that point, he's been bedridden or restricted to his wheelchair, right? We don't see him really getting better. We don't see him trying to walk. Yeah. Nothing like that. And the moment, the next scene we see after the leg-breaking scene is him in his wheelchair again at the window. Yeah. And which, by the way, is one of my favorite moments because he just flips off Annie through the window. And it's so funny. He's just so done with everything. He's like, I don't care anymore. Mm -hmm. But regardless, like, I don't feel like his situation changes at all because of that scene. It's so iconic and horrifying and Mm -hmm. well done. But I don't feel like he feels any more or less desperate than he did. Any more or less injured or sick. So... I, I don't think it's quite of as, as effective as it could have been. Yeah, in the book, he's a lot more beaten down, right? He yeah. started off drinking the mop water, and now he's like, I have nothing left. I'm missing a foot. I'm missing a foot. And if that's not quite enough in the book, we also get this little bit of a time jump here. And we are just informed casually that he's also missing a thumb. Yep. And you're like, wait, what? Did I what? read that right? And then he's like going back and talking about like, recovering from the leg being, you know, his foot being chopped off and like trying to get back into writing after that. You know how hard it is right after an amputation. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And then him and Annie getting into like an argument about something before that seemed so like innocent and that she agreed with him. And then like two days later, for no reason, she just comes in and uses an electric knife and cuts off his thumb. Yeah, because he, she wanted to know the rest of the story. Yeah. And he knew he couldn't tell her. Yeah. And he kind of pushes back and she seems to like back down. And then two days later, he makes a, like a small complaint about the typewriter. Yeah. And she says, I'll give you something to complain about. And she comes back with the electric knife and cuts his thumb. Off his thumb. (laughs) I mean, I love this jump in time and just being informed of this and this idea that the foot wasn't the end of it even. Like, there's yeah. more to come. More yeah. has happened. Mm-hmm. And I want to read a part here because, I mean, not only is he being physically 
dismantled, right? Yeah. But also mentally, he is just kind of slowly falling apart, right? Mm -hmm. And I think Stephen King captures this so well in the writing because he's just laughing his ass off at things that are horrifying. Yeah. You can just tell by his, like, internal monologue that he's beginning to lose it. Mm -hmm. And there's one part that I think... And it's when he's reflecting on on the thumb incident that he talks about this. Because Annie returns with a cake after this with his thumb in the middle of it and candles. Yeah. (laughs) And this is in the middle of a paragraph. It's a long paragraph. And it's all one run-on sentence. So I'm going to go through it. Not the whole thing, but most of it. And I'll try to keep it quick because that's kind of the vibe of it. And sitting in the exact center, pushed into the frosting like an extra big candle, had been his thumb, his gray dead thumb, the nail slightly ragged because he sometimes chewed it when he was stuck for a word and she told him, if you promise to be good, Paul, you can have a piece of birthday cake, but you won't have to eat any of the special candle. So he promised to be good because he didn't want to be forced to eat any of the special candle, but also because mostly because surely because Annie was great, Annie was good, let us thank her for our food, including that we don't have to eat, girls just want to have fun, but something wicked this way comes. Please don't make me eat any of my thumb, Annie. The mom, Annie, the goddess, when Annie's around, you better stay honest. She knows when you've been sleeping. She knows when you're awake. She knows you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. You better not cry. You better not pout. But most of all, you better not scream. Don't scream. Don't scream. Don't scream. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, just. It's, uh, It's a lot. It just. I love the way he just works in random thoughts from previous portions yeah this run-on sentence like this his mind just inserting random things trying to make sense of what's happening in his world it just so perfectly captures where he's at mentally right yeah i think his mental state is also being reflected in the misery story that he's writing for annie yes we get caught up on what's going on with misery (laughs) and they are in africa and this is like Such a weird and bizarre storyline. They're in Africa with this made-up Burka bee goddess tribe, right? Where they have these albino bees that they worship in this African tribe. And Misery is, like, allergic to bee stings, and they're there trying to, like, find a cure. But then she's kidnapped, and then she's going to be, like, sacrificed to the bee goddess. And it's very dramatic and creepy and bizarre, And I like it, but I also am like, this is such, like, a stereotype for, like, an African tribe. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And they've got misery chained up naked, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Covered in bees. (laughs) And there's this character, Hezekiah, who's just such an Uncle Tom character. Yeah, all his dialogue. Mm -hmm. and And I do think this is where Stephen King often struggles is when he includes... Anything with a black character, anything with any type of minority. Um, We had earlier in the book when he was talking about his book, Fast Cars, where they use a slur for a character in that book. And then Annie actually uses the N-word when she talks about Hezekiah. So it's not coming from, I mean, it's coming from a villain, so we know that it's bad. Yeah. But, like, I do think that this is... I wish that it was done a little bit better because it is fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I love this setup and this idea because on one hand, this turn in the Misery novel seems really random, right? Yeah. But it's kind of so based on little things hinted at earlier Mm -hmm. when 
he's, you know, early on in the story trapped. He thinks about this time when he was a child and he saw this bird at the zoo that was beautiful. Mm-hmm. And he found out that it came from Africa. Yeah. And he got really sad because he just knew it was going to die yes. in fucking New England or wherever he was. And <laughs> yeah. it was, like, sad that it would never go back to Africa. Mm-hmm. And he kept, like, not directly, but, like, relating himself to that bird and this idea Trapped. of Africa. And so Africa in his head became, like, a metaphorical kind of thing. He also constantly compares Annie to a goddess. Yes. And in fact, he compares her to an idol, right? Because he talks about her being made of stone. Like she's just impenetrable. There's like nothing going on in her face. And often he describes her face as becoming like a crevasse in the rock. Yeah. That's just full of emptiness. And just being nothing, right? She's not flesh and bone. She's not a person. She's more than that. And I think because he's so desperate and because she has so much power over him, to think of her as this goddess feels normal. And so he's relating this goddess, this bee goddess of this, you know, ancient and mysterious African tribe to Annie feels very, like, spot on for him. Yeah, and this idea that writers pulling inspiration from strange and unlikely places. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so interesting to read this portion because you do get more portions from the misery novel. Yeah. Not as much as before, but you're thinking, is this good or is this just unhinged? <laughs> yeah. Is this actually, because he keeps thinking like, oh, this is my best misery novel in years. And I'm yeah. like, is it? Or are you just crazy? <laughs> yeah. Like, is this a genuine plot? Because this seems like it's gone completely off the rails. Yeah, it's really wild. And added to that, um, more keys are falling out of the typewriter. (laughs) So eventually he has to just start writing it handwritten because he can't do the typewriter anymore. Once again, I mean, King just uses the format of a novel (laughs) so well, and especially for humor, because you're reading these passages in the typewriter font and the ends are filled in. And then suddenly just words are starting to like be weird and misspelled. And it cuts back to Paul and he like is shaking the typewriter and then like the T falls out. <laughs> and he's like, and God he, damn it. And you realize all the letters had <laughs> lost their T at the end of that. And like then the E falls out. It's so funny. Yeah, it's great. Uh, this is when the police show up, Ian. Mm-hmm. So in the movie Buster, the cop that has been investigating throughout the film finally decides to show up and question Annie and see what's up with her. He knocks on the door. He just comes right out and says it. He's like, I'm looking for Paul Sheldon. Yeah. The novelist. And at this point, he knows that she quoted the misery novels mm-hmm. during her trial about like the, the the murders that she had committed. Yeah. Earlier, she saw him coming. And so she drugs Paul, puts him in the basement and then goes up to meet this cop. Yeah. And she invites him in, which you should never do with cops. No, even if you've kidnapped an author and are forcing him to write a sequel to a novel that he was finished with. And he's like, do you mind if I look around? And she's like, fine, go right ahead. I don't mind. And I'm like, Annie. Do you want to stay for Coco? Yeah. I'm like, don't invite the cops into your home unless they have a warrant, Annie. (laughs) Everyone knows that. He's snooping around. He doesn't find anything. And he leaves. But then Paul kind of comes to in the basement. Ends up making a noise and he comes back and sees Paul in the basement. And just as Paul is like kind of reaching out and he's like, help me. And he shoots him. His chest explodes. Right through the chest. And he falls face first down the steps. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> I kind of just really love this because 
his entire arc meant nothing meant nothing like <laughs> thinking back on this movie i remembered this but i was like did paul get a hold of his gun or something or did he use the his walkie-talkie at the end mm-hmm. to like call the police no <laughs> at most you could say like oh him finding paul and then being shot kind of put a timer on how much time they had left because they knew that the cops would come and investigate after this cop went missing. So I guess in a way, him finding Paul did kind of save him mm-hmm. in a far-reaching way. But honestly, I do love that just he gets shot after watching him for so long in the film. Yeah, and doesn't end up being able to save Paul at all. Yeah. The book is a little bit different. It's just a young rookie cop who is just stopping by people's houses, asking if anyone has seen Paul. He's just kind of like a routine check. There's no suspicion at all in there. And Paul is able to get his attention. He throws an ashtray through the window and starts screaming. Which, by the way, in the book, the first thing he yells, because he at first he can't even speak. He's so beaten down that he has trouble signaling for help because he's so broken. But he finally (laughs) breaks the window and he doesn't even know what he's going to say. But the first thing he shouts is, Africa! <laughs> he starts screaming, Africa, help me, Africa. Yeah. The young cop comes over and he's trying to warn him about Annie. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Annie comes. She grabs a wooden cross from the grave of her cow yes. that she buried and just stakes him in the back with it. Yes. And I'm like, is he a fucking vampire? Like, she's going to town with this wooden cross. It breaks. She's stabbing him with the broken end. Mm-hmm. I mean, just mutilating him, right? Yeah. She leaves. And Paul is like, oh, my God. this I can't believe this just happened. I just watched this happen. And then he sees that the cop is still alive. And he's like, oh, my God. And the cop is trying to, like, crawl back to his car. Yes. And then here comes Annie on the riding mower. <laughs> and she just... She just fucking mows him over, like goes for the head and everything. Like she just mows him over. Runs over him. I kind of love it because this is so over the top, right? It's so, it's almost funny. You could see it in a comedy where you think he's dead and then he gets up and you're like, oh my God, he's not dead. And then something even worse happens to him and then he gets up again, you know? Yeah. And in the book, Paul is writing, you know, the misery novel and he talks about how he's, writing this melodrama to the extent of it almost feeling like self-parody. Yeah. And he's having trouble, like, (laughs) riding that tonal wave. Yeah. Of keeping it sincere, but, like, genre. Uh Uh-huh. And right when he's thinking about this is when this happens. The (laughs) most violent, (laughs) over-the-top murder you could ever imagine or put to paper. Yeah. And I'm like, this is so, it feels so self-aware from Stephen King, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's awful, but also, wow. (laughs) (laughs) What a way to go. What a way to go. Uh, She brings him down to the basement in both versions after this. And there's kind of this... I'm going to kill us both moment where she's literally like, all right, it's time for us to go. I've got a bullet for you. Got a bullet for me. And this is where Paul has to be like, wait, wait, I'm almost done with the book. Yeah. Like, I just want to finish it. And don't you want to know how it ends? Like just a little bit longer. And he has to kind of delay her and be like, yes, you can kill me later. Like, I know this. We'll, we'll, We'll kill each other. Like, it's fine. Yeah. But like, I need to finish the book. You want me to finish. I need to finish. And I love too that in the book, Paul is very upfront with the idea that, like, 
writing this misery novel has been keeping him going as well. And he wants to know how it ends. Yeah. He wants to do it. It's not just for Annie at this point. Like yeah. He, and he acknowledges, he's like, I think this is the best misery novel I've ever written. It's gothic. Mm-hmm. It's kind of weird. It's dark. And I'm still not, I wasn't sure. I'm like, is this actually good or not? I don't know. <laughs> but it's driving him, right? It's mm-hmm. his reason to live, at least for the time being. And even though he knows finishing it means ending his own life, essentially, he still knows that that's just, that's the finish line. He has to go for it no matter what. Yes. And so she agrees to delay their deaths. And this is where he kind of gets an idea about how to beat her. And in both versions, he ends up kind of grabbing this lighter fluid from the basement. And when she brings him back up to the room later, he's able to hide it. In the book, there's a scene where two more cops show up. And Paul decides to not cry out this time and is kind of like, I have the plan for how I'm going to take down Annie. It has to be me. I want to be the one to do it. And I think there's also some fear in her killing more people. Yeah, because she tells him, you're the reason that other cop is dead because you yelled out to him. And even though he doesn't totally believe that, a part of him, I think, does. And even though there's two cops this time and the one is really big and Mm -hmm. he thinks they have a way better chance of taking her down, he still doesn't want to risk it. But also, it's definitely a personal revenge thing. Yes. And you get the idea that at this point, he's so broken, both mentally and physically, that I think in his mind – this is like a Moby Dick thing. And he's yeah. like, I'm taking you. We're both going this down. This is it. This yeah. is it. Like, <laughs> it has to end with you and me. Yeah. So he gets this whole thing going where he's like, the book's going to be finished. I'm going to need a cigarette to finish it. And she's going to give it to him. So he gets the match. He pours the lighter fluid over the book. And then when Annie comes in, he lights a match and he sets the book on fire. I love oh God. <laughs> It's so poetically beautiful yeah where she made him burn his book yes the one he cared about at the beginning of the story and now he's burning the book that she cares about yeah i love when a writer can make these connections Mm -hmm. that in a lesser story would feel like it's hitting you over the head yeah but in a well-constructed story it's like beautifully poetic it's so perfect yes yeah and she starts freaking out and trying to save the book he uses this opportunity to pick up the typewriter and try to hit her with it yes in the movie he hits her over the head with it in the book he just gets her back and then this enters into this epic struggle between them where like he's on top of her he's shoving burning pages of the book into her mouth it's so well in the film she manages to shoot him in the shoulder yeah He's on top of her. Yeah, in both versions, he's taking the burning book and shoving it in her mouth. And I love, especially in the film, I feel like it's sickly satisfying for the viewer. Yeah. Because you're like, it's not enough just to stab her. No. Or like (laughs) shoot her or anything. Like you want to watch her suffer. Yes. I don't love, the book kind of makes some rape connotations here. Yeah. And I'm like, Stephen King, come on, just- just leave that part out. Pull it like, back. this is you good. Don't... This is good. Just leave that. You don't need this. I know. You don't need this. I mean, on one hand, once again, this is him, like, the character is so unhinged at this point. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's, like, good or necessary, but, like, for me, I can mentally forgive it a bit more. Yeah, he doesn't rape her, but he talks about being in a position where it feels like it's a rape, right? He, yeah, and I mean, he's forcing the burning book into her mouth, so there's obviously a lot of, like... Connotations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They. It's a pretty, pretty evenly matched fight though and she's giving him 
basically what he's giving her back. Like yes. she's attacking him in the movie. He gets shot. Right. And all of this is happening. She ends up like kind of tripping and hitting her head. And this kind of brings her down. I love in the film, he trips her with his like crutched leg mm-hmm. and she falls and hits her head on the typewriter. And in the book, she trips on the typewriter and hits her head like on the mantle, right? Yeah. But there's a moment where it's like the bitch is dead, right? Yeah. Nope. So he tries to escape. <laughs> In the book, she awakens and like he's just like she's unstoppable. Yeah. And in the book, it's kind of implied that like him shoving the paper in her mouth was like choking her. Yeah. In the movie, it just seems more like a spiteful act. But yeah. In the book, it's more like that's what's killing her. She's like choking to death. Yeah. But she's like still conscious at this point. Still, they're crawling towards each other. Yeah. Um. Eventually, she dies again. Right. Yeah. In the book. In the movie, he like hits her with a little pig statue. <laughs> which, once again, the the, <laughs> the metaphor, misery. the misery pig. Yes. Which we haven't mentioned, but she had a pig being misery. <laughs> yes. And in the book. He's able to just, like, shut the door on her. Yeah. And, like, her fingers under the door are, like, still moving at one Ugh. point. And he kind of, like, g- gets into the bathroom, takes some more pills because he's in so much pain and passes out. And um, some cops end up coming in. This is all in the book. The cops show up and they find him. And I love that it switches to the cops' perspective this is here. brilliant. The The cops are literally, like, when he came home that night to talk to his wife, he's like... I read this book, The Count of Monte Cristo, and they talked about a man who had been like in solitary confinement for like 30 years. And that's what this man looked like. It looked like someone who should not be alive. Uh, Yes. (laughs) I mean, like you get you get an image of Paul, right? Yeah. You know, his foot is cut off. You know, his thumb is cut off. You know, he's thin. You know, he's like kind of going insane, right? Yeah. So, you, you know, he's not he's worse for the wear. But it's that outside perspective, and this is another part of the book that just stuck in my brain, Mm -hmm. right? Giving the cop perspective of him showing up and finding this man. Screaming. Screaming on the floor, like talking about this goddess. Yeah. And watch out, and his foot is cut off, and his thumb is cut (laughs) off, and he looks insane. Yeah. I mean, just really drives home everything that Annie had done to him. Yeah, and where he is now. We get this uh, epilogue in both the book and the movie that... In the movie, it's 18 months later. In the book, it's nine months later. Yes. In the film, he is having dinner with his publicist. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this is supposed to be the book that he had written that Annie burned. I don't think so. It's called something else. Well, it was untitled in the film. Oh, yeah. I see what you mean. So it could be. It's like the education of something or other. So, like, I don't know if it's supposed to be that same novel. Like he he rewrote it. Yeah. But it's finally being published and his publicist is like, have you ever thought about writing about what happened to you? And I love he's talking about well, he makes a weird comment about like, you know, I think what happened with Annie was almost good for me. Yeah. And I'm like, was it? And then you see a woman coming towards them yeah. in this restaurant and it's Annie. And he's not reacting. Yeah. He's looking, but he's still just talking. She gets there and it's a different woman. And she's like, oh, my God, are you Paul Sheldon? I'm your number one fan. And he's like, thanks. And it's just like that idea of like Annie is still with him. Yeah. Like he can't escape. That she's 
I mean, like, you Haunting know, him. Yeah, and there is probably only one Annie Wilkes out there, right? But also this idea that other people would still consider themselves his number one fan and that yeah. being unsettling and mm-hmm. j- great ending. A great little, ending. A little cheesy, but just spot on. I think it works. Yeah. The book ending is a little bit similar. It's him coming back from a lunch with his editor. But we find out that he did not actually burn the misery book. No. He burned a bunch of like scrap paper that he kind of led Annie to believe was the book. And he had hidden the real book under the bed. And so now he's publishing that book. He's (laughs) like, I did great work on that. I lost a foot and a thumb to that book. It's getting fucking published. Which I had to ask. I'm like, did you keep everything with like the bees? Yeah, I guess he did. I'm like, I guess this was a publishable book. Um, But he comes back to his apartment and he keeps seeing Annie everywhere. And there's this scene that plays out in his head where she comes and like just decapitates him with her axe. Which we didn't mention, but when it leaves off with the cops coming and finding him, he tells them she's in the she's in the bedroom. Like, watch out. Be careful. And the cops, he can't really see them. They go in the Mm -hmm. bedroom. They're in there for a minute and they come back and they're like. There's a pool of blood, but there's no body in there. And he just screams. And that's like where the chapter ends. Yeah. So we don't know in this epilogue, did she actually escape? Was she dead? Yeah. So when this version of her appears in his apartment, I mean, I don't think you really believe it. But no. like, there's a part of you that like, you don't know what happened to Annie. Mm-hmm. But she like decapitates him. But then, of course, it's just a vision. Mm-hmm. And he reveals that. Annie did actually get up and escape the room. She got all the way to the barn, all the way to a chainsaw that she had in her hand before she just fucking collapsed and died. And died of like a brain hemorrhage. Yeah. I love that idea (laughs) that she was still gonna kill him. Yeah. (laughs) That she was like, what do I have in the shed? I have a chainsaw. Yeah. I mean, God, I, I just love that detail. It's so good. So, so good. Yes, but... In this epilogue, you know, he realizes it was just a fantasy and he kind of sits down. I mean, he talks about him kind of drinking to combat his pill addiction and things like that. But then he's like, you know, when I was walking home, I had this idea and something just kind of struck me. And he sits down in his typewriter and he starts typing. And this is like supposed to be redemption for him, right? He's able to write again. He's talked about how he hasn't had that spark Of being able to write in so long. And he wonders if Annie took it away from him. And here he starts crying as he's typing because he's able to finally get back into writing. And I think it's really worth mentioning this part because Stephen King has actually talked about how this book is about his addiction to cocaine. Yeah. About his own battles with substance abuse. And that he talked about how like Annie almost represents cocaine, right? Yeah. Because she's, like, forcing him to write this book. She's giving him these ideas, and he almost wonders, like, can I still write without that? Yeah. And finding out that, like, yes, he can. He can still write without drugs. You know, he still has that gift. And his battle with Annie being, like, his battle with cocaine. I love this ending so much in the book because it's really – I think it's really beautiful and sad where, you know, he's such a damaged person by the end of this book. Yeah. But he's still able to find that same escape into writing. Mm -hmm. But also how he talked about how writing was this equally 
obsessive or compulsive thing mm-hmm. as like the the medication was. Yeah. Right? It's this thing that he had to do, right? This addiction that he had. Mm-hmm. And so it's like great that he's able to find it again. Kind of bittersweet because it's still this thing that he needs to escape. Yeah. But you know is still good for him. Mm-hmm. And it's ha- you're happy that he's able to continue writing. I, I don't know. I just think it's like this perfect bittersweet ending that's it really so is. good. Yeah, it, it works so well. I think this is leading us naturally into a discussion mm-hmm. on which we prefer. And I already know my answer. I do too. Even though I love the movie, I think it's such a good adaptation. Which, I mean, it says so much because the book is so deeply psychological. So much in Paul's head. Yes. That it's kind of shocking that it makes for such a good screenplay adaptation. I know. I mean, like, the dynamics of the characters. I mean, we didn't even fucking talk about Kathy Bates. I know. Who just steals this movie. Like, as good as James Conn is, Kathy Bates. I know. I mean, she won an Oscar for a reason. Yes. And reading this book, I mean, you can't picture anyone else Mm -hmm. as Annie other than Kathy Bates. Because she just is so good at embodying that role. Both, like, emotionally and just, like, physically and Mm -hmm. just everything in between. I mean, the bo- the movie has everything good going for it, pretty much, minus maybe, like, a couple small complaints I might have. Yeah. But the book is just that with, like, this whole entire psychological aspect that honestly makes the entire thing for me. I know. It's almost like they're two different stories, right? Yeah. And Stephen King just writes Paul's character so well writes his desperation, writes how pathetic he is yeah. so well. And you're like, how can you still root for this character, but you do and you still care? And like, it's just so poignant and interesting and thoughtful and visceral, right? Yeah. And it just really gets to you. And I really like this book. I do too. I mean, he manages to make a book that's so much about the the craft of writing and what it means to a writer yeah, and how it's kind of a selfish thing, kind of a like a, a need and addiction mm-hmm. on its own. But he manages to work that into a story where a character is literally writing to save his life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's not, I mean, it's over the top in a way, but in a good way. Yeah. And it's genre, but it's so character driven and thoughtful. Yeah. This is great. This is Stephen King at his best, for sure. It might be my favorite Stephen King book. Yeah. Because it's not that long. (laughs) It's not that long. Compared to a lot of his books. Yeah. It feels like it's the perfect amount. Mm -hmm. And It feels like a self-reflection. Like, it feels like he is critiquing himself in a lot of ways. And I like that. Yeah, being critical of himself, Mm -hmm. but being thoughtful about what it means to be a writer. And also, I mean, Annie Wilkes might be the best character he's ever written. Yeah. Because... She's so scary. She's real. Mm-hmm. Like, you feel like you've met an Annie Wilkes before, even if she you, she wasn't a murderer. Yeah. Someone who's just kind of off, right? Yeah. And yet there's still kind of a sympathy to her. Mm-hmm. Like, you, at one point he says something about, like, there was a moment where she genuinely felt she looked like she was sorry about something that yeah. she had done. Yeah. And he st- said something about, like, in the book he was thinking – it made him realize what kind of person Annie could be if the chemicals in her brain worked the way they were supposed to. Yeah, or if she had gotten the help she needed. Yes. Mm-hmm. And just this idea that she's kind of a victim of her own compulsions. Yeah. As much as, like, her own victims, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, 
it's kind of just how she's made and that's like sad and terrifying. Yeah. But like there is a kind of sympathy to her. For sure. Yeah, it's got to be the book. And like I said, I loved watching the movie. Oh, it's great. I'd watch it again. It's a classic, but um, it's definitely the book on this one. I also know it's a, uh, it was on Broadway as a play. Wow. As well. And I would love to know. <laughs> it would make a good play. It would. Apparently Bruce Willis was in it back in like 2015. Wow. Which I'm like, yeah, I could picture him <laughs> as Paul Sheldon. Yeah. So wow. I'd be very curious what that's like. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's a book from both of yes. us. Yes. Let's do lightning round. Let's get into lightning. So I just like to start off lightning round by reading. This is like the first few pages of the book. And I'm going to skip around a little bit. But this metaphor for Paul's pain after his accident with his shattered legs is so interesting. And I love it so much. So I'm going to start reading here. As time passed, he became aware that there were periods of no pain and that these had a cyclic quality. And And for the first time since emerging from the total blackness which had prolonged the haze, he had a thought which existed apart from whatever his current situation was. This thought was of a broken-off piling, which had jutted from the sand at Revere Beach. His mother and father had taken him to Revere Beach often when he was a kid, and he had always insisted that they spread their blanket where he could keep an eye on the piling, which looked to him like the single jutting fang of a buried monster. He liked to sit and watch the water come up until it covered the piling. Then hours later, just skipping ahead a little bit, um, the top of the rotting piling would would begin to show again, just a peak and flash between the incoming waves at first, then more and more. Um, so just talking about the piling kind of being hidden by the tide and then being exposed. Yeah. The piling had almost wholly reappeared, its blackish slime smooth slide sides surrounded by sudsy scums of foam. It was the tide, his father had tried to explain, but he had always known it was the piling. The tide came and went, the piling stayed. It was just that sometimes you couldn't see it. Without the piling, there was no tide. When he came back to his former state of semi-consciousness, he was able to make the connection between the piling and his current situation. It seemed to float into his hand. The pain wasn't tidal. That was a lesson of the dream, which was really a memory. The pain only appeared to come and go. The pain was like the piling, sometimes covered and sometimes visible, but always there. When the pain wasn't harrying him through the deep gray stone grayness of his cloud, he was dumbly grateful, but he was no longer fooled. It was still there, waiting to return. And there was not just one piling, but two. The pain was the pilings, and part of him knew for a long time before most of his mind had knowledge of knowing that the shattered pilings were his own shattered legs. And then I just want to skip ahead a little bit here. He discovered three things almost simultaneously, about ten days after having emerged from the dark cloud. The first was that Annie Wilkes had a great deal of of Novril, which is the pain medication. She had, in fact, a great many drugs of all kinds. The second was that he was hooked on Novril. The third was that Annie Wilkes was dangerously crazy. (laughs) This book begins so well. It does. Yeah, I, I love this metaphor for the pilings and the tide being the pain medication. Mm-hmm. And later he even uh, compares Annie to the moon. Yes, bringing the tide. Bringing the tide, pushing the tide away. And it uses that metaphor so much, but it never really gets old. It's just so effective. Mm-hmm. Like when he's without pain medication for a while, he talks about like, more of the pilings were exposed than ever before. Yeah. You could see, like, dead sea creatures and white <laughs> scum on the very, like, bottoms of them. Mm-hmm. And just great visual metaphor. For sure. 
So one other small thing with the film, it, it's very brief, but I have to point out as being kind of bad, is the helicopter shots. Oh, really? Not the shots of the helicopter from a distance or from it looking down, but when Buster is in the helicopter with the pilot, yeah, it just looks like a TV <laughs> show. Like, it's just this stationary camera facing the front of the helicopter. You can't see anything to either side. It's, like, kind of sky, but not even, like, a projected sky. It's just blue. Yeah. And Buster is talking to the pilot, like, not even that loudly. Like, you're in a <laughs> helicopter. Yeah. And he's like... Um, yeah, down there, I think might be something we want to like look at. Like he's just casually. And I'm like, you are just so obviously on a soundstage right yeah. now. It's absurd. Oh my like, gosh. Uh, also worth mentioning the pilot was Rob Reiner. Oh, that's so funny. As a yeah, which I did not catch I at all. I didn't catch that. But that's I thought great. that was a funny cameo. But yeah, luckily it's only in for like one brief scene. But yeah, that that fake helicopter <laughs> that he was sitting in was really bad. Not good. Uh, there's another scene in the movie where it's like a really weird shot and like it looks like Paul has his hands under the blanket and we kind of joke we're like is he masturbating right now like what's he doing and Annie's kind of standing off in the distance talking and then all of a sudden he brings his hands out and he was peeing in a jug <laughs> and you're like oh that totally <laughs> makes sense I just thought it was really funny well Annie was monologuing about how much misery meant to her about this yeah. tough time she went through in her <laughs> life yada 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 it's like a three minute monologue and then to realize that Paul was peeing the entire time and he just time, hands it to her like here you go <laughs> so funny yeah uh finally for lightning in the book there's kind of a really funny part where annie tells this whole story about her which honestly the story was like almost a little unnecessary it was just about her killing this random hitchhiker yeah but she talks about picking him up at like a ceramics like art fair he was an artist and he was on his way to a nearby colorado location to sketch the ruined burned down remains of the famous Overlook Hotel, mm. which for anyone who is even vaguely familiar with Stephen King, that is the hotel from The Shining. Yeah, which he actually comes back to in another one of his books. The, the Doctor Sleep? Yes. Yes. When they come back to the ruins of the Overlook Hotel. So, yes, uh, loves to drop little clues from his other books. Yeah, a lot of his books are kind of in a shared universe, but it didn't make me laugh because I was like, Jesus, Stephen King, maybe not everyone's read The Shining. You yeah. want to, like, spoil, like, the entire book here? Because he's like, oh, yeah, the crazy uh, uh, hotel manager burned it down. Yeah. And, like, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Jesus, come on. <laughs> so uh, that wraps up Lightning Round and our episode. It was a really fun one to do. We hope you enjoyed it. Yes, I was so happy to get to reread this book, mm -hmm. watch this movie again. And, I mean, this is such a classic and... Not even just for Stephen King, but in general, a classic adaptation worth talking about. For sure. Uh, thanks so much for listening. If you would like to support us, you can become a patron. All of our patrons get monthly bonus episodes. We just put one out on some really choice Netflix rom-coms. Christmas, um, Christmas, Christmas rom-coms rom that we watched. So it's holiday appropriate. And you also get priority episode requests. So if you would like us to talk about a specific adaptation, best way to do that is to become a patron. You also get access to our personal Discord for uh, Cover to Credits, where a bunch of other patrons are a part of, and we get to have great conversations. That So that's great. Uh, if you can't become a patron, though, giving us a positive rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts is really helpful for improving our 
ranking and the algorithm or whatever is going on there. Yeah, you know. Uh, go to CoverToCredits.com, find our Instagram, find our Twitter, find our Facebook, find all those great things. Follow us. Join us. <laughs> One of us. Yes. Form a parasocial relationship with us. <laughs> yes. Get to know us personally. The, yes. The real us. Become number one fan. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.